So, this last part, I titled Disordered Desires and Reordered Loves. I think at the core of who we are in these stories we tell are the desires and the loves that we have. Our behavior and our actions will flow out of those deeper loves. You will choose what you love. And one of the things the gospel does is the gospel reorders that love so that now you have a desire to serve Christ even when you don't do it quite well or even when you don't understand what to do. There's something different now than there was before. And so this notion of disordered desires and reordered loves has a long tradition in the Christian faith. Um, one place I want to point this out from Paul and then uh, St. Augustine. Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians the threefold virtues of faith, love, and hope. There are two in particular passages, one in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, um, verse 3, when he prays and he says, I give thanks to you for you, mentioning in you my prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. I personally think that Thessalonians can be outlined that way with chapter 1 describing that labor of faith as it gets established. He even talks about, at the end of chapter 1, they're turning from idols to serve the true, living and true God. And then in, in what we looked at in chapter 2 and 3 and part of 4, um, the labor of love that Paul shows to the church and then asks them to perform. And then when you get to chapter 4, and you shift in verse 13. Verse 13 is the shift for the last part of the book. And it's about the second coming, which is definitely in our minds about hope. But Paul even expressly says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. And so he uses those three um, virtues to articulate a picture of the Christian life, uh, how we're called to engage in faith and, and love one another and hope for what's yet to come. But the church through the years has always used these three as the quintessential virtues to describe everything else that flows from the Christian life. And interpreters from St. Augustine to Martin Luther have used these three virtues to help them read scripture. Not only when they read a text do they say, what does the text say? But they also ask, what does this text call us to believe, which is the faith element? What does this text call us to do, which is the love element? And what does this text call us to anticipate, to hope for? And that reading has, fa has fallen out of use in some circles. Um, but it's very predominant in someone like Augustine. And Augustine, I have a quote here from him. Uh, Augustine, uh, church father from the early first 500 years of the church who wrote the book, The Confessions and the City of God, some classics of the Christian faith, the rest of, in some ways, the rest of church history stands on the shoulders of Augustine. I was reading, um, I actually stumbled onto Augustine's theology of this from C.S. Lewis when uh, I was reading through C.S. Lewis's book, The Abolition of Man, 
which is a brilliant analysis of the failures of education in the early part of the century. And um, it's even more so now, as Lewis says, we don't teach to the affections. Lewis's point there is that we don't teach and train the affections. And if you don't train the affections, the emotions, the desires, you lose the educational dynamic. And, and that, that's kind of one of the situations we face as a culture because we don't do that in our schools. No, some schools do, but they're mostly private. And sometimes we don't do it as churches. We don't do a very good job of cultivating the affections. So Augustine, when he goes to describe the Christian life, when he goes to describe the transformation that's happening, when he goes to describe your growth and sanctification, he says this at the bottom of page 7. But if the Creator is to be truly loved, that is, if He Himself is loved and not another thing in His stead, so that it seems to me that it is a brief but true definition of virtue to say it is the order of love. And on this account in the Canticles, the Bride of Christ, the City of God, sings, Order, Love, within me. Now this quote comes from the city of God and the, the term ordo amoris that's right there beside Augustine's name is the Latin term for ordering love. It is Augustine's notion that growth, sanctification, holiness in the Christian life is the process of ordering your loves. Now I, I'm convinced he's right and I, I have since then found a host of other people who talk, talk this way. One of the modern writers that talks this way is John Piper. He's got a book called Desiring God where he talks about our desires for God being the preeminent thing and then how our other loves flow out of that. C.S. Lewis talked this way. Let me read to you a letter that he wrote back in 1952 when he's talking about God and our other loves. He says, when I have learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. When I have learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. When first things are put first, second things are not suppressed, but increased. Now, that's the maturing process of the Christian life. When you learn to love God before all things, your other loves will fall in place. And what idolatry is in the Old Testament is turning that upside down. It's placing second loves first so that you look towards these other things first. And so in the, in the history of the Christian church, there's been this long-standing tradition that the Christian life can be looked at as a process of ordering your loves. That ordering of your love takes shape different ways at different times. Before you're married, when you're married, <coughs> when you have children. Your life is always a process of reordering those loves and how you have to love properly. Same thing we were talking about like with ministry. If you're sitting across from a person who needs you to be gentle like a mother, you're ordering a love. You're ordering a love towards that person as opposed to encouraging and exhorting them like a father. And so this last section, what I want us to do is think through the way we have traditionally described this because as you live out your life in union with Christ, 
what you face are things that are root patterns of behavior that get you stuck in certain paths, certain areas of disobedience, and then shifting towards areas of obedience. This is a basic process of repentance and faith. Um, Paul describes it in to Timothy when he talks about the Word of God uh, being inspired by God and being profitable for uh, instructing us, training us in righteousness, and connect, correcting us. Paul describes it as for the, for the vices that I have on, on page nine, it is the correction side, that, that, that we are correcting the sin, the vices. And then on the training and righteousness side, you're cultivating virtue. Mm. Because in the process of the Christian life, Paul is trying to get us to move from the vices and the sins mm. to the virtues. And he's trying to get us to do it because in order to deal with the vice, you have to replace it with a competing love. That's the process of growth in uh, Scripture. That's why seeing union with Christ at the center of it is so helpful. Um, for this tradition of vices and virtues, um, the, what makes something a vice is not only that it's wrong or evil, but that it is a root issue that brings other issues out. In other words, it's the rut. Used to go four-wheeling when I was younger. Only reason I don't now is I don't have four-wheeler, to be honest. <laughs> so I shouldn't say when I was younger. But you know, when you're out mudding in some of those areas, there are ruts. And you get stuck in that rut, it's hard to get that thing, that truck or that four-wheeler out of the rut. Vices are ruts, and you get stuck in one. And sometimes, and what I'm asking you to do with this last session is to reflect on your life, to ask the questions, why it's this and not that. When you're living out your union with Christ and you're ministering to other people, and certain vices become areas that you see are problems, we have to get beneath the, the, the water the, the water level. You know, that illustration, I think I first read Larry Crabb use it, but since then I've seen all kinds of people use it, of an iceberg where the majority of the iceberg is under the water. That's your soul. The majority of who you are is under the water. And, and those, those drives and those desires and those things inside of you, sometimes you talk to somebody about them, but unfortunately, a lot of times we men don't. And our lack of talking about them together with each other is a deterrence to holiness. Because the, the way towards dealing with it is to be able to name those things. Even the, the Puritans, Richard Baxter has a book uh, about how he counseled people. And one of the most helpful insights he discovered in helping people is being able to name the problem, to see that they have this problem and this is what it is. Because when you name it, you bring it to the surface. Otherwise, it just sometimes floats beneath the surface. And so when our character is distorted by, these, by vice, we, we seek good things 
in a misguided way, in an even idolatrous way. Food's not a bad thing. Sex isn't a bad thing. Anger doesn't have to be a bad thing. Money's not a bad thing. All of these things are not bad things unless they're disordered. And when they're disordered, they're bad. And so the process of this is trying to reorder it, trying to put our values back in place because our values are out of whack. We pursue good things for the wrong reasons. And so on these lists, what I have here on page nine is the traditional categories of virtues and vices, or the way they've been called, the seven deadly sins, which is the vice section, and the cultivating of virtue, which is the three traditional virtues of faith, hope, and love, and then, uh, I mean, the, four, the, the three theological virtues, and then the four traditional virtues. Now, there's all kinds of ways to talk about holiness in, in the Christian life. Um, gratitude, um, a, a host of uh, understanding what the law says and trying to obey the law. What, what I've done this weekend with you is, is pushed you to think about your union with Christ and how your obedience flows out of that union. And then using these virtues and vices as, and love as the hinge on which you move in these things. Um, and, and to be able to name it and acknowledge it, that it's there. See, in, in the Middle Ages, when they had a lot of art that reflected some of the theological points that were being made, and if you're a literary person, Dante's Inferno uh, and uh, Purgatory are based on this kind of medieval tradition. People have long commented, and, and Dante is one of those uh, books that I taught in literature, for literature at, uh, in school, but that his, his book on uh, purgatory is not really primarily a theological statement about purgatory, but one of the most helpful books in the history of the church about your core motivations because he's analyzing what's going on in your soul through this view of the vices. So let me, let me look at these vices with you for just a moment and talk about this because I find it helpful to categorize things like this in the same way that Paul does the fruit of the Spirit and, 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 and um, how we want to live out the reality of the fruit of the Spirit and not the vices that he lists. So greed. Um, greed is one of those vices that um, is sometimes called covetousness, the desire for material wealth or gain often to the point of ignoring the realm of the spiritual. Greed involves both the refusal to give away and the desire to accumulate. So greed not only deals with holding on, but not giving up, a refusal to give. And when you target a vice, when you see that there's a vice there that you need to deal with, then you don't just say, oh, I need to repent of the greed. I need to repent of my greed and, and deal with my grief. You have to find the corresponding virtue that allows you to turn and, and intentionally stop it and, and try to get out of the rut. Some, tradition, some, some people in writing about this talk about hope as the answer to greed because at the because at the core of greed is a fear of the future. 
It's a fear of what's coming. And you're trying to be the master of what's yet to come. And so in practice, you can cultivate that virtue of hope uh, by being generous. And so those things are connected. The, the way this turns is interwoven uh, in Scripture. Gluttony is another one. Um, gluttony is the inordinate desire to consume more than that which one requires. It involves two things, and this was surprising to me when I studied this tradition. Gluttony not only involves overeating, which is it's fortunate <laughs> I'm talking about this with all those cinnamon rolls in there. <laughs> Gluttony is not only overeating, but it's being dominated by that pleasure. So in, in, when C.S. Lewis talks about gluttony, and Lewis is so good at this in some of his writings, but when Lewis talks about gluttony, he talks about not only the person who overeats, but and he uses the French to pick on, but the French person who has a little thing on their plate, and they are very tedious about it and taking an inordinate desire of pleasure in that little piece of food. It's conveying the same thing, Lewis says. Um, and gluttony, you know, gluttony's not overeating at Thanksgiving. These things are not occasional. These are ruts that you get into. And then here's, the, here's how it ties into the attempt to reframe your story with union with Christ. These become stories you live out of. All these vices become stories you live out of. So, so the opposite of gluttony uh, would be temperance, uh, number three. It would be uh, moderation or restraint or self-discipline and control. Temperance is the ability to control your appetites and passions so they're not in excess. And if gluttony is one of those problems, then you put practical uh, issues in place. Uh, sometimes fasting has been suggested. Other times, you know, different things that can happen that you can put in place for the cultivation of the virtue. Lust. We live in a very lustful culture, um, overwhelmingly so. It's staggering to me uh, as my kids grow up and we talk about shows that we used to watch. My, kid, my, my son has just become all excited about the Andy Griffith show. He's in third grade. And so we'll watch it, and then he'll often say, you know, this is different from these other shows. <laughs> and it's amazing when you put those things side by side how much things have changed. But lust is seeking your happiness and pleasure in the body. And what you'll find with each one of these vices, and this is why I'm highlighting this, is it is an attempt to find your happiness and pleasure somewhere else. It's an attempt to satisfy your heart in the wrong place. And I can put them here on paper and give you a definition and dress them up like this and we can be very stoic about the conversation. But each one of these are powerful emotional drives that we live out of unless we are telling a competing story that comes from union with Christ and the gospel to move us towards the virtue that Christ calls us to display. So... Finding our happiness and pleasure in the body, especially sexual acts, our culture proclaims that gospel over and over and over and over and over. That you can find some kind of happiness and, and pleasure there more than anything else. And of course, the competing virtue for lust is love. Um, the one that Paul calls the greatest of all virtues. 
um, everything about the virtues is the process of ordering love. And in regard to that, we are trying to cultivate a purity of heart, a practical aspect of cultivating the purity of heart in our life. Anger is another one of the seven deadly sins, also known as wrath. You'll notice I have on here, anger is the rejection of love and instead the choice of fury. Each one of these things is the rejection of love to some degree. And so in anger, we consider that our anger or wrath is going to solve the problem. Now, each and the reason why it's helpful to see these as ordering your loves is because the competing, the cultivating virtue is justice for anger. Because justice sees that there's a fair standard on how we treat people. And, and anger in Scripture can be just and can be right, and should, we should want to see justice. But the problem is, in anger, it can go wrong in its target or its expression. You can be wrong in what you're angry at or how you're angry. And we can justify anger over and over and over. But the reality is, the percentage at which we should really be angry and act on that is so small. Most of the time, that justice that we are looking at requires a patient, sacrificial love to accomplish the goal. And anger is just the quick answer. Now, none of these are, are, are attempts for me to say in your emotional feelings, in the way you express yourself, in the way you deal, that you have to suppress those emotional feelings. It's the process of channeling them in the right way. Sloth. Sloth is not just laziness, but it's also a lack of care or concern for what is good. Now, let me show you. I, I'm, I can't do this with each one of them. I keep you here too long. But I want to point out to you in Thessalonians something Paul says. He says it in both epistles. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need to write to me to write to you. This is 1 Thessalonians 4. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed what you're doing. But we urge you, brothers, do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk, walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. That's 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12. He is dealing with the issue of sloth right there. And we discover when we get to 2 Thessalonians that this problem hasn't been resolved. It's fascinating. He goes on in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, and we didn't get into 2 Thessalonians, but I'm, I'm going to read this passage. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition you have received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. We were not idle when we were with you. <laughs> so, so this aspect of sloth is not just laziness, but it's the avoidance of the physical or spiritual work that's right in front of you. Now, if you reframe sloth that way and take it off the potato couch and you look at it as the avoidance of the physical or spiritual work that's right in front of you, how many times do you choose something else because you're avoiding the thing that's right in front of you? You are making a choice about ordering your love at that moment by not choosing the good thing that's there. 
The people in Thessalonica, when I preached and, and wrote on this, one of the good translations calls those people busybodies. Those are the people in your church that want to know what every committee's doing and want to know when you're going to do this. And they're always into their noses into everything else except the thing it should be, which is usually their family or their home life or their relationship with their husband or wife. I can't tell you how often I've had somebody who wants to do everything in the church and the one thing I wish he'd do is go spend time with his wife. And he's avoiding it. That's what sloth is. It's, it's, it's covering up the thing you're supposed to do with all the other things. And that's an important thing to see. When you, when you interpret your life and see those things, then you can help someone order their love properly. The, compete, the cultivating virtue is fortitude. Fortitude is number four at the bottom, also called courage. The ability to confront your fear, to face uncertainty and intimidation. That man that I was thinking of just a moment ago that wanted to do a whole host of things in the church, his greatest fear was having to open up to his wife. It's not what he wanted, but it was probably the one thing that they needed. And I was never able to, to help him pull that off. He would not go down that road. And I find that, um, and, and fortitude and courage is such a helpful virtue because I find that we all struggle with certain fears. And often our fears are the things at which God is trying to move us in our growth. It's often been, and, and my fears have moved through the years. Um, you, you're pre-30 days, you feel invincible and think you, nothing's going to happen. And so some of those fears are related to lack of success or work or whatever. And as you get older, those fears start to shift and move. And sometimes we do everything we can to avoid them. And when that happens, you're in this paradigm. You're moving around with these vices and virtues and not realizing that's the pattern that you're doing. Envy. The desire for another person's traits, status, abilities, or situation. Envy typically focuses on who we are as opposed to greed, which focuses on the possession of things. So envy, like sometimes we'll say, I'm envious of your house or something like that. No, you're greedy for that, usually. Envy is envious for the status that that house gives somebody. And so making those distinctions and seeing the difference in the vices, envy is overflowing in our culture because we... Um, we highlight people's traits and status and abilities and situations. And yet, how we have to learn to minister to one another and learn to, and this has been a challenge for me at the, the business that I rent, run, figuring out how to live this way in the corporate world with all the competing dynamics is extremely difficult. And of course, there is a distinction that Paul would make, I think, in my opinion, between those of faith and those outside and how you are vulnerable a little bit more with those of faith as you try to serve. But it doesn't mean that when you go to uh, work, you turn the switch off, right? You still have to see, well, why is it that I'm having this issue with my anger here? What's this person making me mad about? Because that's more about you than them. There's something going on that it's highlighting for you. So, um, for envy, um, the classic virtue, the cultivating virtue is generally faith. Um, it is cultivating 
a faithfulness and trusting Christ for all things and not looking at another person's gifts and trying to um, strive after that. It's trusting God for what you have. It's a contentment that you have. Um, and then vainglory. I have vainglory in here as opposed to pride because I think that pride, in, in the images that uh, describe this, this tradition, pride is the root problem that everything flows from. And so vainglory is, uh, its root meaning is empty glory. But it's the disordered desire for recognition and approval from others, the constant focus on your image. Vainglory is what we live in now in social media. That's constant vainglory. Now, yeah, it's a great thing that we have all these different technologies that we can connect with families we don't see and everything. But that's not normally what happens on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and things with the youth. And so we are cultivating a generation that focuses on its own image. Just consider the fact that the iPhone comes out, what, 2008, 2009, when Steve Jobs made that big, and we've had the iPhone for 10 years. <laughs> and it's already demonstrated that the amount of anxiety and depression and all these other things have increased with, this millennial, with the millennials because they're constantly comparing themselves to each other. They're constantly getting bombarded with these images and such. And of course, the uh, cultivating virtue for vainglory is prudence, also called wisdom, the ability to judge between actions, be careful with decisions, not impulsive with judgments. And, and that practical virtue um, in prudence with wisdom is humility because you're being humble in how you approach these things. Now, I wanted to add that because, in my opinion, this is a grid that happens in Paul. And, and he doesn't structure it like this. It's the rest of the Christian tradition that structures it. But we pull this from all these passages where he talks about what you should do and what you shouldn't do, why you should do it, why you shouldn't do this, and the interaction of these things. He certainly uses those, that language, and whether it's seven, I mean, early in the tradition there were nine. Um, so the number's not a big deal. I just put the corresponding numbers because that's where the tradition ends up being. I, I personally think that there may be a couple more that would be helpful to add, but I'm not. The main thing to see is that in this process of union with Christ, Paul is always not just telling you what to repent of, but pointing you where to go. So when you look at the structure, as, as we wrap this up, of Thessalonians, and he talks about where they've been and how faith was established. And then he talks about his love and all the stuff he's done for them and he wants to see them do. He doesn't just leave them there, and this is true in all, almost in all of his letters in some way. He points them where they're going. He points them to a future that can be better than the present. And, and that's what this dynamic of these virtues do. And, and so for Paul, the pointing towards the future, as he wraps this up in Thessalonians, not only points towards um, the second coming, which in, in our story is the great climactic event, the one that wraps everything up, and explains to them 
twice in that First uh, Thessalonians 4 verse 13, he says, I don't want you to grieve as those who have no hope. So yes, grief is a reality. Pain is a reality. But you don't do it as, as if you have no hope. Because you believe, and again, Paul, when he goes to hope, he still ties it back to the gospel, right? For since we believe Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring those with him. That's still union with Christ in, in the hope section. And, and then when he ends it, he bookends it, um, therefore, encourage one another with these words to continue to encourage each other in this. And then as he goes into chapter five, he continues to talk about waiting for the coming of the Lord, that he will eventually come and, and anticipate that. And he ends that in verse eight by highlighting these virtues again. He says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, which is part of the story we tell ourselves, that God's wrath is out to get us when these things happen. God has not destined us for wrath. And remember, he already said, we're destined for affliction, but not destined for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live for him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So for Paul, as he wraps this up, that final piece of hope is an important component to help continue to motivate us towards the ministry that he's called us to do. Without hope, you lose the story. So I'll leave you with uh, his benediction from uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24, where he says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. That's the gospel that we affirm. All right, let me pray, and then we'll talk a little bit. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this letter from uh, Paul to this church in Thessalonica. Thank you for these virtues of faith and love and hope and how in our union with Christ, we can see these things at work in our life. And Lord, we strive not to view them as a process of our acceptance, but the overflow of your grace and love to us in all these circumstances. We would ask, Father, as you wrap up this uh, retreat, that these men will go back encouraged, seeking to live out the reality of their union with Christ and their acceptance through this gospel that we proclaim. I pray that they will sense your presence with them in their life, in their families, in their ministry at the church. And may you keep blameless their whole spirit, soul, and body. We know you're faithful and we trust you to do this. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.